West Virginia isn't a state that gets a lot of attention nowadays. Bluntly, it's not even the most well-known of states with Virginia in the name. However, the story I'm going to tell you involves the single largest American civil insurrection of the 20th century, the first time Americans were subject to an air-based attack on their own soil, and a battle in which over one million pieces of ammunition were used, all of it taking place in West Virginia. And what was the inciting reason for this chain of events that left so many wounded and dead? Fifteen cents a day. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is What? Explain. West Virginia is one of the most coal-rich areas in the United States. In fact, only two of the 55 counties within West Virginia do not have some form of natural coal deposit occurring within. The demand for coal for lighting and power kept a brisk business going in West Virginia throughout the 19th century, but it wasn't until competing railroad lines were built through West Virginia that the coal mining industry became the giant boom industry it was through much of the 20th century. You see, with the railways, you were able to transport far more coal at a time to a much larger market. Just attach as many cars as you needed and as many engines as you needed to haul said coal, and you could bring it to whatever client needed it the most. The market for West Virginian coal all of a sudden grew a lot larger, and enterprising individuals started buying up coal-rich land and developing mining operations as fast as they could, particularly if it was very nearby the railway tracks. Given that many of the mining operations were far away from any existing towns, this necessitated the creation of company towns, in which houses, stores, and recreation areas were built for the miners and their families to use. However, there was no government and no municipal laws for these towns, as the company owned each and every part. Often, the companies took advantage of this monopoly by paying their workers in a particular currency called scrip, which is only good for use in the company stores in the town and nowhere else. Imagine working for Amazon and only getting paid in Amazon gift cards, and you have an idea of what sort of operation these companies were running. Using this system, the companies were able to get around having to pay actual money, as the workers had no other choice but to use the scrip in the company stores for supplies and goods. While the scrip issue was bad on its own, the high mortality rate of miners in West Virginia compounded it immensely. There were six mining collapses in 1906 alone, causing the deaths of hundreds of mining workers. And on December 6, 1907, two interconnected mines in Mononga, West Virginia exploded, killing all 358 miners that were underground at the time. Additionally, the prevalence of coal workers' pneumoconiosis, or black lung disease, from inhaling coal dust over time, as well as spending long hours underground, and the potential for coal dust and natural gas fueling explosions underground led to a very high mortality rate. To give you an idea of just how dangerous the job was, during World War I, West Virginian coal miners had a higher mortality rate than the American soldiers sent over to fight in Europe. Meanwhile, the amount of coal being mined in West Virginia increased exponentially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, increasing from just under half a million tons of coal a year in 1867 to 89.4 million tons by 1917. The mine owners were becoming incredibly rich off of the dangerous work of the miners, and the miners' discontent was growing. The first major flare-up of this discontent came in 1912, when the miners of the Paint Creek Mines tried to negotiate a new contract with the mine operators, 
Pretty much all of the mines in the area were unionized, but the Paint Creek miners were making about 15 cents less a day for doing the same work. The additions the miners wanted in the contract were to be paid that additional 15 cents a day, same as the other miners in the area, as well as being able to trade where they wanted, rather than being paid in scrip and forced to buy from the company stores. And they wanted the United Mine Workers, the Mine Workers Union of the United States, recognized. These changes would have cost the operators about 15 cents more per worker per day. That's about $4.28 per day in today's money, or, assuming an eight-hour workday for the union mines, about a 53-cent increase in the hourly wage in today's money. The operators refused point-blank to all demands, and the workers of the Paint Creek Mines ended up dropping their tools and going on strike on April 18, 1912. Soon after, 7,500 of the non-union workers from nearby Cabin Creek joined in on the strike. In May of 1912, the mine operators doubled down on the strike-breaking, hiring the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency to get the miners back to work, no matter what needed to be done. The Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency started out as detectives hired to find out about train robberies and criminal activities but morphed over time into a private security firm for whomever would be willing to pay top dollar. By this time, they were known as strike breakers and thugs for hire, depending on who you ask. If you needed men willing to commit violence for your cause, you went to Baldwin Feltz. They sent in over 300 armed guards to the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek area, fortifying it with concrete forts and machine gun nests as an intimidation tactic. They also started running a specialized train called the Bull Moose Special, which was an armored locomotive, a passenger car, and an armor-plated baggage car with slots for two machine guns to poke out. This acted as an escort for other trains bringing non-union workers who went into the mines, as the mine operators ended up bringing in labor from outside the state, and sometimes outside the country, to try and maintain production. Once information about the Baldwin Feltz armed camp leaked out, people within the Socialist Party of the United States smuggled weapons into the camp of the striking miners, including six machine guns, 1,000 high-powered rifles, and 50,000 rounds of ammunition. Both sides were now armed to the teeth, and tensions were rising, exacerbated by the Baldwin-Feltz agents evicting all the Union workers from their houses within the mine area, forcing them to live in a tent city that sprung up around the train tracks outside the mine. Shootouts were a daily occurrence, mostly centered around the trains carrying non-Union workers to and from the mine. The armed miners would open fire on the train, and the guards and police would fire back and try and chase the miners back into the hills. On July 26th, the striking miners attacked the town of Muchlow, where the Baldwin-Feltz agents were located. The ensuing firefight left 12 miners and 4 agents dead. Less than a month later, a procession of armed miners, led by famed union organizer Mother Jones, marched up to the steps of the state legislature in Charleston to deliver a speech criticizing the governor of West Virginia, William E. Glasscock and his handling of the situation. The miners wanted the removal of the Baldwin-Feltz mine guards and the denial of the workers' rights to free speech and assembly, 
as well as the recognition of the United Mine Workers to act as their negotiators. The mine operators thought that the United Mine Workers organization was just a front put up by their out-of-state competitors to drive up their prices and make them less competitive, and vowed to break the strike by whatever means necessary. Near the start of fall on September 1st, 1912, the miners finally had enough. Over 5,000 miners armed with rifles crossed the Kanawha River towards the mines, declaring their intention to kill the Baldwin Feltz mine guards and destroy the mines. The mine operators deployed more guards and prepared for the miners to attack. This was the tipping point for Governor Glasscock, who imposed martial law in the area the very next day. While the miners initially celebrated the soldiers coming into the area as a return to the rule of law, it soon became quite apparent that the soldiers were only interested in breaking the strike and de-escalating the situation. The soldiers confiscated weapons from both sides, but it was only the miners that were arrested and subject to incarceration and military tribunals, rather than having a hearing in civilian court. Meanwhile, as fall moved into winter, the miners' families were suffering from cold and malnutrition in the tent camp that they had been living in since the Baldwin Feltz agents kicked them out of their homes. Martial law continued off and on until January 10, 1913, as Governor Glasscock only had two more months left in office, and reasoned that any political fallout would be his successors to deal with. Having dealt with an entire winter under martial law and confined to tent camps, the miners attacked the agents at much low once again, killing one person. In retaliation, the sheriff of Kanawha, Bonner Hill, several of his deputies, and one of the mine operators, a man named Quinn Martin, used the Bull Moose Special by cover of night and opened fire into the miners' camp. Hundreds of bullets ripped through the camp as several of the miners were wounded, and one of the strikers, a man named Francis Francesco Estep, was killed when he was trying to shield his pregnant wife from the bullets. This was the incident that made the strike a national headline. As condemnation flooded in from across the country, martial law was imposed a third and final time as the miners struck at Munchlow once more to get revenge. On March 4, 1913, Dr. Henry R. Hatfield was sworn in as the new governor of West Virginia and made the crisis his top priority. He immediately released the 30 miners being held under martial law and moved to try and have the strike resolved by April. On May 1, 1913, the Hatfield contract was presented to both parties, with both sides fairly bluntly being told to accept it or face consequences. Given that most of the miners' conditions had been met by the contract, they signed, and one of the bloodiest strikes in American history had ended. However, this was only the beginning of the blood to be shed in what would be known as the West Virginia Coal Wars. The Matawan Massacre of 1920 was the next escalation of the battle between mine workers trying to unionize in West Virginia and mine operators using guards and threats on the miners' livelihoods to stop that happening. This time, the events occurred in Matawan, a small town in Mingo County, West Virginia, less than a 100 miles southwest of Paint Creek. During the previous decade, the miners of West Virginia had some manner of success in unionizing and striking when needed in order to get a fairer wage. 
Often, these strikes would result in the striking miners being fired and tossed out of their homes by the mine operators. In the bitter West Virginia winter, that was no laughing matter, and some miners and their families died due to the cold or malnutrition. Even with the possibility of losing their homes and livelihoods, many of the coal miners still signed on to join the United Mine Workers Union, including 3,000 coal miners in Mingo County alone in the spring of 1920. In retaliation, the Stone Mountain Coal Company, the primary employer in Mingo County at the time, began the process of mass firings of union members and using mine guards to evict the miners and their families from their homes. After losing their homes, the unionized miners and their loved ones began a tent camp just outside of the town of Matawan. As spring rolled on, the unionized miners showed no signs of giving in, so the Stone Mountain Coal Company hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency to break down the tent city to continue pressing the miners into a corner, basically saying, come back to work or die in the cold. The Baldwin Feltz agents went into the camp in force and started destroying some of the miners' tents. After the agents carried out several of these evictions, they went back to Matawan, ate some dinner, and then tried to get back to the train station to catch a train back to Bluefort, West Virginia. As the Baldwin Feltz agents moved towards the station, they were stopped by Matawan Mayor Campbell Testerman and Chief of Police Sid Hatfield. Hatfield was sympathetic to the miners' plight, and claimed to have arrest warrants for the agents provided to him by the Mingo County Sheriff due to the agents not having any legal jurisdiction in the area. In turn, Albert Feltz, the leader of the agents and brother of the founder of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, presented his own warrant for Sid Hatfield's arrest. Upon examining the agent's warrant, Mayor Testerman claimed that it was a fake as the two parties yelled at each other over whom had the power to arrest whom, neither noticed that they were being intently watched by a steadily growing group of miners who had followed the agents from the tent camp, now all armed with rifles. To this day, it isn't known who exactly started shooting and when, but bullets began flying, and after they were done, Mayor Testerman, seven of the Baldwin Feltz agents, including Albert Feltz, and two of the miners lay dead on the ground. Given that a massive shootout had occurred and the elected mayor was killed, the governor of West Virginia instated martial law in the area, and Sheriff Hatfield complied, instructing his deputies to stockpile their weapons in the hardware store and cooperate with the soldiers when they came in. Many of the miners involved in the shootout, as well as Sheriff Hatfield and his deputy Ed Chambers, were arrested when the soldiers arrived and the trial for the miners began on January 26, 1921, for the murders of the seven Baldwin Feltz agents. All of the miners were acquitted of all charges on March 19, 1921. Hatfield and Chambers' trial took longer, mostly due to the Baldwin Feltz agency attempting to provide additional proof that there was premeditation on the sheriff's part. However, both men were acquitted, and the Baldwin Feltz agency had to take matters into their own hands. Hatfield and Chambers were both killed on August 1st, 1921, on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse, by Baldwin Feltz agents. The murder of the two men, both union sympathizers, was enough to start the bloodiest chapter of the Cold Wars, 
and the largest civil insurrection in the United States in the 20th century, the Battle of Blair Mountain. Less than a week after the murder of Hatfield and Chambers, the leaders of the Union miners in West Virginia submitted a list of demands to Governor Ephraim Morgan. They explained their grievances with the mine owners, especially with their employment and use of extra-legal Baldwin Feltz detective agency guards who used intimidation and violence to suppress the miners' civil liberties. Ten days later, on August 17th, Morgan not only refused the miners' requests, but he wouldn't even comment on the murders of Hatfield and Chambers in front of a West Virginia courthouse. After the announcement was made, many armed Union miners began gathering in the town of Marmot, eight miles south of the state capital of Charleston, with an estimated 13,000 miners arriving by August 20th. They wanted to avenge the murders of Hatfield and Chambers, both seen as symbols of the Union cause and to free the Union miners jailed in Mingo County, which was still under martial law. However, they still had one obstacle in their way before they reached Mingo County, Logan County, and their staunchly anti-Union sheriff, Don Chafin. While mine operators in other counties had to rely on the private sector for mine guards, Don Chafin and his deputies fulfilled much of the same role in Logan County, to the point where Chafin had his deputies posted outside of mine entrances throughout the county, looking for evidence of Union organization. There was no greater enemy of the Unions than Don Chafin, and the Union miners' singular stop on their way to Mingo County was to try and unseat Chafin as Sheriff of Logan County, no matter what methods they needed to use. Once word of the march got to Charleston, Governor Morgan dispatched West Virginia State Police to Mingo County and petitioned President Woodrow Wilson to send in the National Guard to assist them in quelling the miners' rebellion. Wilson refused, so Morgan ended up giving Chafin permission to create a home guard, as he called it, to repel the miners before they made any inroads into Logan County. A full-scale armed rebellion was too much for some of the Union leaders, and even Mother Jones, who was instrumental in the success of the Cabin Creek and Paint Creek strikes, had had enough. Jones tried to stop the marching miners by reading a telegram purportedly from the president himself, promising that if the miners returned to their homes, he would abolish the practice of hiring mine guards forever. However, several of the men in the crowd doubted the legitimacy of the telegram enough that they continued marching on right past Jones towards Logan County that very night. On August 24, 1921, the first of the armed minor force arrived at the borders of Logan County. Chafin had been busy once he had received permission from the governor to set up his own private army. Also receiving financial backing from the Logan County Coal Operators Association, and volunteer recruits from many in Logan County, Chafin had raised an army of 2,000 within a matter of days, which he armed and stationed along Blair Mountain, a ridge that the miners had to cross in order to get into Logan County. Once positioned, all they needed to do was wait. The miners and Chafin's forces began exchanging fire on August 30th, 1921, and for three days after, Two sides fought with Gatling guns, rifles, and whatever firearms either side could acquire. The miners had the greater numbers, but Chafin's forces were better armed and had better positioning on the mountain range. 
On the second day of fighting, Chafin commanded the three biplanes he had acquired to fly over the miners' camp and drop two gas bombs and two bombs filled with gunpowder and metal shrapnel, marking the first aerial assault on American civilians on their own soil. Given that the ridge at Blair Mountain prevented the miners' full force from entering into Logan County, the fighting was at a stalemate until federal forces arrived demanding both sides surrender. The miners surrendered to the federal troops willingly, because their grievances were with the state government and county sheriffs that were enabling the mining operators and jailing their comrades. Additionally, many of the miners were veterans of the U.S. Army in World War I themselves and didn't want to fire on the American soldiers. Many of the miners retreated after the federal forces arrived, trying their best to disguise their rifles and handguns as they left. At the end of the conflict, 985 of the miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Most of the miners were acquitted due to the sympathetic juries, but some jail time was served, with the last of the miners being paroled in 1925. The Battle of Blair Mountain was something of a short-term victory for the mine operators and a long-term victory for the miners. Membership in the United Mine Workers Union dropped from its peak of 50,000 members in West Virginia to less than 10,000 within a year, and Don Chafin was considered a hero by many mine operators in the area for busting what was considered an armed uprising of the Union. However, the unions altered their strategy more towards getting the law on their side through pointing out the abuses of management rather than holding out for operators to change their minds one at a time or leaning towards armed rebellion if the government does not see their way. Unions were instrumental in many aspects of FDR's New Deal, and were able to organize into much larger groups, such as the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The thing that gets me about this particular bit of history isn't the sheer amount of violence that took place in West Virginia over the decade of the Coal Wars. It isn't even that there was a straight-up insurrection not just once, but twice, or that you can in fact shoot a sheriff and a deputy on the steps of a courthouse with no repercussions. It's that all of this can be traced back to one group of mine owners not wanting to pay their miners 15 cents more a day. That's it. Simple greed. Instead, they decided to throw their workers out of their homes and hire additional armed guards to keep them out which I imagine cost them more than 15 cents a day, but I digress. It absolutely astonishes me how some people who are wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, with more money than they could possibly spend in a lifetime, are rapidly opposed to their workers getting a livable wage. If you're not allowing people to go to the bathroom on a shift or making mandatory unpaid overtime a part of the job, You're blatantly making money off of the suffering of your workers. Is it a coincidence that the richest man in the world is in charge of a company synonymous with working their employees to the bone amidst draconian employment conditions? It is a super interesting statement that this person's wealth has increased by almost 40% during the COVID pandemic and the workers' conditions. Well, they've gotten worse. Here's a hint. You've definitely gotten a package from them at some point. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch.
who tells me that while saying the phrase Governor Glasscock is a little bit funny, it is quite difficult to edit out my giggles each time. Apologies to Craig. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at whatexplaincast or on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has already rated and reviewed the show. I really appreciate it. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful. So if you have a friend, family member, or West Virginian history buff that you think may like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks for the second season finale of What? Explain. Bye.